for those of you who are still counting, uh, it's number 18 now in the in the Bible survey. And uh, we, we come on tonight to the book of Psalms. Now, obviously, if only because there's 150 of them, which is the equivalent of 150 chapters, we're going to have to tonight depart from the method that we're using of going through each book chapter by chapter. I mean, life is too short. Uh, one's, one's, one's tempted to say, with 150 psalms, and particularly with Psalm 119 in there as well, that eternal life is too short to do that. Um, therefore, we're going to have to approach the book of psalms more, more with a kind of a general categorization, uh, necessary and helpful info, and a dippy-dippy, all right? So, so, so that's how we're going to, you know, sort of handle the book of Psalms. And in fact, um, that will also be uh, the same as uh, when we um, come on to Proverbs as well. Um, after Proverbs, we will revert to chapter by chapter because that's feasible, but not for the book of Psalms. And uh, as you'll see when we come on to it, not for Proverbs either. So uh, very much miscellaneous information, uh, general categorization and dippy dippy, for example. So you'll see what I mean by the dippy dippy as we proceed. But a bit of, bit of general information, everything you ever wanted to know about the Psalms, but rather afraid or too thick to ask. Um, it's it's been called Israel's hymn book, and really that is what the Book of Psalms is. It is their hymn book. I mean, you know, like we as a fellowship, we you know have like certain books out of which we we get our worship songs. And uh, Israel had the Psalms, 150 songs that were written to um, you know to express various things, as we'll see as we proceed. Now, in a sense, it's it's fairly easy to to be a bit dismissive of the Psalms um, on the basis of, well, it's, it's only songs, isn't it? And of course, I mean, so Psalms is a very useful book because if you're having real problems with your personal Bible study, but your conscience is working too well to stop reading the Bible completely, there's always the book of Psalms, isn't there? And, um, you know, so there, there's a real sense in which the book of Psalms can degenerate into the easy-touch Bible reading, as it were. And it's easy to be dismissive, like almost the attitude, well, it's only songs. But uh, I think that it's worth noting, and uh, this, I think, will give us the Bible's view of its own songbook, that um, of the 283 times that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, 116 of those quotes are from Psalms. I'll say that again. Of the 283 times that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, 116 of those quotes are from the Psalms. So, when the Old Testament gets quoted in the New Testament, um, nearly half are from one book, the book of Psalms. So that, that kind of gives us a perspective that uh, it's, it's certainly not a question of, oh, well, it's only songs, is it? There's, there is so much in the book of Psalms, and I mean books and books and books could be written about them. No question about that. Now let's, let, let's deal with, with authors who, who wrote them. Um, 73 of them are ascribed to David. Now, there's, there's, there's going to be a problem here, which I'll show you in a minute, but 73, it appears most likely were written by 
David. Uh, Twelve of them were written by a bloke called Asaph. Uh, now, Asaph was the, um, the leader of uh, David's choir. If you, if you go to 1, 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians, what am I talking about? 1 Chronicles. I wonder myself sometimes. 1 Chronicles, chapter 16. And let's, let's just see um, old Asaph here. 1 Chronicles 16, and read from, from verse 4. Um, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord, to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. And uh, then move on into verse 7. That day David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. And then in verse 37, David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. So Asaph led David's choir, who, who like, you know, sort of like sang all the psalms and led the worship in Israel at that particular time. So Asaph, it shouldn't surprise us, it would appear, wrote 12 of them. Now, 11 of them were written by the sons of Korah. Now, uh, the, 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 the sons of Korah, Korah, all right, was, was Levi's great-grandson, all right, and uh, Korah led the rebellion against Moses. We saw that back in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Well, his sons, uh, who were quite different from their father, they didn't lead any rebellion at all, they were faithful, they're, they're said to have... Uh, written 11 of the Psalms. Uh, two of them were written by Solomon, that's Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. And if, if you just turn to Psalm 127 and I uh, think we'll um, get actually a, a, a clue to, um, to the actual Psalm itself. Psalm 127 and, uh, and you get this, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those who he loves. And uh, what's significant there? Of course, it was Solomon who built the temple. And, and so there in a psalm, he's kind of like, you know, sort of bringing out the point that, okay, anyone can build a temple, anyone can do this, that, or the other for the Lord, but at the end of the day, unless the Lord himself is in it, it's, it's kind of pointless. And, uh, you know, and the reason he homes in on this, you know, it's vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants his beloved sleep. The thing is there, that it's not, it's not workaholism, you know, that gets the Lord's work done. And, and, and when the Lord's working, you don't forget sleep. You know, it's not this mad rush. I mean, life today is a mad panic, isn't it? Everyone belting around like maniacs. Well, that, that, that isn't how it should be with the Lord. And Solomon, uh, while he remained faithful to the Lord, he, he knew that. He knew that it was a question that it was the Lord doing it through him. And so that, that, that just gives a clue there to that psalm. He was relating, obviously, to his experience of having built the, um, the temple. And then one psalm, uh, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. Just have a look at that. I bet you didn't know that Moses wrote one of the Psalms, but he did, Psalm 90. And, um, we'll just read the first couple of verses just to get, just to get a feel of it. Now, we'll read uh, down, down to verse 6. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, 
or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. And of course, that, that, that verse gets uh, quoted by Peter in his epistle. And of course, uh, what's significant, written here, that verse about one day is a thousand years, written by the same man, Moses, whom God revealed, he'd... Uh, you know, sort of created the universe in six literal days. So it just gives an interesting insight on that verse. And then he goes on, You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. And of course this is Moses, who saw the Egyptian army destroyed in the Red Sea. And so, you know, Moses there very much reflecting his awareness of the power and the greatness of God over men. And uh, then there's one other psalm written by a bloke called Ethan, uh, who was one of David's singers, and that's Psalm uh, 89, although we won't actually turn to it. Now, I said earlier that there was just a slight problem in regards to authorship, because uh, obviously you get this a psalm of David, or a psalm of Asaph, or a, a psalm of the sons of, of, of Korah. Now, the problem is this, that uh, in, in the Hebrew, the prepositions of two and four are the same in the Hebrew. So the problem is, when it comes to translating, if you've got the, you know, like a psalm of David, could also be translated a psalm to David, or a psalm for David. So I say that just to show you that there's a kind of bit of a problem there, but uh, nevertheless the accepted view is that the vast majority, you know, were written by him, uh, you know, and that when you get, you know, like a psalm of David, that, that that's, that's the translation it should be, rather than a psalm to David or a psalm for David. Because obviously the psalms were written um, as unto the Lord. And, uh, you know, but I mean, obviously he didn't write them all because some of them, of course, came later, didn't they? And, um, I mean, for instance, if, if you turn to Psalm 137, um, and this, this is an example of a, a psalm that, that, that was written... Um, much later, and, uh, and indeed, it's one of the psalms that we don't know who wrote it, it's just there. But if we read this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now there's a psalm written, like, you know, sort of tearfully, in the Babylonian captivity. So obviously that was written long after the time of King David, and it's a psalm written in the captivity that is sort of like longing to be back in the land where they belonged and kind of weeping and expressing this grief over the fact that they were um, in captivity under the Babylonian, um, uh, that they were in captivity under the Babylonian Empire. So, you know, sort of like there's just um, a bit about uh, authorship and stuff like that. Now, just say, when you read through the Psalms, you're going to hit up against some weird words, and you're probably going to think, what are they? You know, they're, they're clearly English transliterations of um, Hebrew words. But, for instance, you're in the Psalms, you'll hit like um, words like shigayon, miktam, and maskil. I just believe, you know, next time you read through the Psalms, keep your eyes open for them. They're there. And, uh, but, but the meanings of these words aren't particularly known. I mean, they're there in the manuscripts, but they, they can't be translated because no one quite knows how to translate them. Um, I mean, it could be that it's some ancient form of classification. I mean, no one's 
really sure. Um, also, every now and then, you'll hit the word Selah, S-E-L-A-H. And, uh, you know, and again, you can read books and people say, well, Selah means this, that and the other. But at the end of the day, the scholars don't know what it means. I mean, it's very possible that, that it's some kind of musical term. You know, it's like in our manuscripts, we might get adagio or staccato. It could be an equivalent of that, but no one is, is actually, actually sure. Anyway, that's, that's kind of the technical stuff. We'll move away from that now. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and move on now to saying, well, look, how are, we, how are we going to classify the Psalms? If we want to break them down, I mean, we can't literally do a study on every Psalm. 150 studies, that, that's, as I say, life, life is too sort, short. So how can we sort of break them down into, you know, a logical and systematic grouping? You know, sort of say, well, here's a category of Psalms, that's a, and here's another one. Now, and this shouldn't surprise us, but you can't. I mean, they, they just don't readily lend themselves to classification um, in that particular way. Uh, in the actual book of Psalms themselves, again, if you read through it, there are five separate books. All right, the actual book of Psalms is made up of five separate books, and you get to book one, then book two. But even that doesn't help us, because if you read through the individual books, there's, there's nothing that each book has in common. So, so there's no ready classification of the Psalms uh, you know, sort of given us in the Bible um, itself. And, and so what I'm going to do, and it's the best I can do, obviously, is I'm going to come up with a very loose classification of my own, i.e., you know, sort of based on my own reading of the Psalms, blah, 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 I've, I've broken them down into certain general categories. Now, don't, don't, don't for one minute think that this is complete or foolproof, because remember, we're not here dealing with narrative we're not here dealing with statement of doctrine. We're dealing with songs, you know. So I mean, it's like if you, um, you know, if you say went and got, um, you know, sort of like a songbook, say a particular songbook that a fellowship used. You couldn't say right now, what can we systematically understand about this fellowship from the songbook because it's songs. If you wanted a statement of faith, you'd have to get a book that they'd written giving their statement of faith. So you can't classify the content of songs in perhaps the same way that you can doctrinal letters or history. But nevertheless, we're going to, you know, sort of come up with a rough kind of classification or grouping them together. And I'm just going to, you know, sort of like we'll look through examples of, of each particular grouping that I've come up with. And in doing this, we'll, we'll have a taster. We'll, we'll get a general sort of overview of the kind of areas, the kind of things that, 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 that the Psalms are going on about. Okay, right, well, my first category, and this would be fairly easy, and I don't think anyone would want to give me any prizes for ingenuity or originality for this one, but category one, I would say Psalms of Praise and Thanksgiving. And uh, which I, I, I would expect even people who aren't Bible teachers to have managed to work that one out. Let's, let, let's just look at examples. Go, go to Psalm 111. And um, we'll read Psalm 111. Not all of it, but just enough to get an idea of it. Right, okay, Psalm 111, starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Now, can you see where I got this idea from now? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. 
he remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are worthy. And so it goes on. Let me just say at this point, if you really want the Psalms to come alive, don't read them in the NIV. Have an RSV or a King James around. for that. I mean, I'm sticking to the NIV because it's what we normally use here. But uh, there's no doubt at all that, that, that the grandeur of the Psalms does tend to be stilted in the modern versions. And I don't say that as a criticism of the modern versions. I think I say it just as a fact. I don't think anyone would argue that poetically the modern versions beat maybe the RSV or the King James. But nevertheless, there, there's a psalm, and, and that is just a, a psalm a psalm of praise. And uh, Psalm 112, another example. Praise the Lord, you see. There's always a clue here in the Psalms, and you tend to find that the ones that, are, that I would designate Psalms of praise and thanksgiving start off by saying, praise the Lord, you see. So at Psalm 112, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. And uh, Psalm 113, I, I chuck. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the, barrel, the barren woman in her home as a happy mother. <laughs> I'll say that again. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. So you're getting the idea there. Psalms of praise, just, just saying how worthy of praise the Lord is, how wonderful he is. So, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a category number one. Now, another category that I'd give you is um, one that I call the, the Songs of Zion, the City of God. Now, if you go, go to Psalm 48 and you just get the idea of these. I'm just giving you examples from each category, but each category, there are loads and loads of Psalms that fit each category. And um, obviously you get overlap, of course you do. But um, right, let's look at, at Psalm Psalm 48, and I think you'll you'll get the idea of of why I'm calling this the Songs of Zion, the City of God. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. So a little bit of category one there creeping in. All right, in the city of our God, His holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And what you've got, and it goes on, you know, like stulling the virtues, you know, of Zion and describing the city of God. And of course, the idea behind these particular psalms is that the fact that when Israel was at its peak and the Shekinah glory was in the temple and the Lord was living in Israel, that was the closeness, I mean, particularly in the time of Solomon, that was the closest that Israel has ever come to having the kingdom of God really established in her midst. And of course, the day is coming when from Zion, Jesus is literally going to rule the earth. The millennial reign of Jesus is going to happen from Zion, the city of God. And when you get these Psalms, the kind of like the description you get of, of kind of Israel when, when God is, is, is amongst 
his people and living there with them is all kind of like a bit of a foretaste of the eventual kingdom that's going to come when Jesus is literally going to rule the earth from Jerusalem itself. And, and then, you know, sort of Zion will be the city of God in the most literal sense of the word, because God himself, Jesus, will be ruling the earth from there. Another example of these songs of Zion would be Psalm 76. Have a, a dippy there. And um, from verse 1, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem. That, that was the old name for Jerusalem. His dwelling place in Zion. And there you've got it. And then you, you know, sort of get a picture of, you know, the Lord, you know, being angry with the nations and, and his, his sovereign power. But, but the same idea that, that, that God, his tent, his dwelling place is in Jerusalem. And of course, that is going to become quite literally fulfilled um, at the second coming. So there's um, a second category. Um, number three, confessions of confidence in the Lord. This will be a, another category. Go to a Psalm 23. I mean, obviously, perhaps the most famous psalm. There are lots of different categories that one could come up with just for this particular psalm. But nevertheless, the category I've put it in is just this, you know, this, this idea of the psalmist, whoever it is, this being a psalm of David. You know, just writing a song, literally, you know, sort of singing about the confidence that he had in the Lord. I mean, look, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Sorry? I shall not be in what? Yes, you see, I'm reading it from the NIV. It doesn't, it sounds wrong, doesn't it? That's why I say you've really got to get back to the, the King James for the Psalms. But uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. See, this is the psalmist, the statement of confidence in the Lord. And what he's saying is that if I've got the Lord as my shepherd, well, then I'm at peace. What more could I possibly want? That absolute confidence of the care of the Lord for him. Uh, I mean, the rod and the staff. You know, I mean, the staff, you know, was the instrument that, you know, sort of like to, to you know, help, help you out of tight spots. And the rod, you know, a picture of, you know, sort of discipline. Um, you know, and, and the, in, in every aspect, you know, like a shepherd, you know, the good shepherd, that's what Jesus said he was, that he laid his life down for the sheep. And here David is just saying, with the Lord as my shepherd, what more do I want? I'm absolutely taken care of, no problem at all. So, you know, an absolute statement, a confession of his confidence, his faith, his trust in the Lord. Um, if you go over to, to verse 27, uh, chapter 27, Psalm 27, third time lucky, goodness. Another example. It's different from the rest of the Bible when you're doing Psalms, you know. Probably have equal problems when we get to Proverbs. Right, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 
And again, if you read to the end of the psalm, that's all what it's about. Just declaring, David having written a song, just saying, this is my confidence. Because the Lord is with me, he's looking after me, and of course he's all-powerful. And if you have someone who is all-powerful, who has the expression, express intention of looking after you, well then you're home dry. You can have someone who says, I'm going to look after you, but they might be incompetent. They might not have the power to look after you. But the Lord has said he's going to look after us, and he has all power. So that, obviously, is the basis of our peace. That is the basis of our confidence. And here, the two examples I've shown you of Psalms, written expressly to show that forth, the confidence that we can have in the Lord to be looking after us. And, uh, right, okay, if you go, go to Psalm 47 now, and another category, and, um, and these are, are, are Psalms that celebrate God's universal reign. The fact, you know, Psalms that celebrate the fact that regardless of what it looks like, the Lord is in control. Here, it's really the Psalms, you could say, the sovereignty of God. That God has got everything absolutely under his control on a worldwide basis. Not just nationally, as far as Israel was concerned, but internationally. The nations of the world were under God's direct control. So, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High. And that's the key, the Lord Most High. That is the sovereignty of God. The Lord, no one is above him. The final decisions are his. The great king over all the earth. Notice, not the great king over Israel, his covenant people, but the great king over all the earth. And not the great one day, the great king, but the great king there and then, in the Old Testament times. So here and now, God is the great king. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. Now, how was it that God could subdue nations under Israel's feet? Because he was in control of those nations. And conversely, there were times precisely because God was in control when he subdued Israel under the nations. All the nations, not just Israel. Israel in fellowship, out of fellowship. The Gentile nations, usually out of fellowship. All under God's control at all times. And, uh, and here you have, you know, let's, let's move on to um, verse 5. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. And then verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. So you see the clear theme of that psalm that God is in control over all the nations of the earth. Uh, another example in this category, go to Psalm 99, where we see exactly the same. There are lots of other psalms, obviously, on this theme. There are psalms which uh, you might fit into other categories, but that which bring this theme in. They all overlap, of course they do. Now in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. And there you get it again, because of course, eventually, in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, he will, from Zion, reign over all the nations in a literal, physical sense. All right. 
But nevertheless, that aside, here and now, at all times, God is in absolutely control. It says, let them praise your name, your great and awesome name. He is holy. And then the psalm moves on, but all in a, you know, very much the same theme. So there you've got the fact that the psalm's there, celebrating, declaring the fact that God was in control, not just of Israel when Israel was in fellowship, but that God was in control of all the nations the whole time. I mean, God doesn't, you know, it wasn't just that God was in control of Israel, for instance, coming out of Egypt. He was in control of Egypt. And he wanted the Egyptian army to end up in the Red Sea, so that's exactly what they did. The sovereignty of God over every aspect of history is one of the, the major themes that you get in the book of Psalms. It's stated in a hundred different ways in other parts of the Bible. You've only got to read the history, all the narratives of the Bible, and it's all shouting out, it's demonstrating the sovereignty of God over human affairs. Um, in fact, it's been said that history really is his story. And that's absolutely true. History is his story. The affairs of men are being controlled by the Lord. So in the history of the Bible you see it. And then in doctrinal passages, you know, you go through the prophets who declare it doctrinally, go through the New Testament. But here in the Psalms, it's sung out in poetry, in song. A doctrine, but expressed in song, because it's alive in the life of the psalmist. And the point is, if God is in control over everything, and if God loves us and is caring for us, well, you're back to the last category. Therefore, our confidence in him can be absolutely unbridled. You know, what more can you ask for? An all-powerful God with your best interests at heart. Um, a, a fifth category... Uh, if you, you go to Psalm 18, do this uh, fa fairly quickly. Um, but what you call royal psalms, which uh, concern the king. Because you'll remember that Israel had a king. And, um, right, okay. Psalm 18. And I can't, with that one, work out why I put that down as an example of a psalm to the king. Okay, scrub that. Um, yes, okay, scrub that. Go, go to 72. Technical error there. Psalm 72. Right, now here it says of Solomon, you see. So, I mean, this could be meaning that Solomon wrote the psalm, or it could be that it was a psalm written concerning Solomon because obviously Solomon was the king. And it says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. Now, what you've got here, and again, you know, the psalm carries on in similar vein, but the importance of these psalms concerning the king is that, unlike other nations where the king was the final authority, I mean, in the ancient world, and, uh, you know, so when you get dictatorships in the modern world, you had a king or a dictator. He was the law. I mean, what he said went. There was, he was the court of appeal. There was no one or, or no thing above him. But not so with the king of Israel. And uh, one of the things that, that, that a king had to do, um, you know, and this was part of the requirements for the kings of Israel, um, is that, that, that the king had to write out the entire Pentateuch. So the king had to, you know, write out laboriously himself 
the first five books of the Bible in his own handwriting. And the reason that he was doing that, it wasn't so much to learn the law of God, although it would have helped him, but it, you know, it wasn't he was supposed to memorise it because he had lots of advisors, but it was symbolic of the fact that he was under the law of God himself and that his job as king was to ensure that God's law ruled okay. He wasn't there just to do what he wanted, I'm the king, do as you say. He was there to ensure that the law of God and the standards of the Lord and the righteousness of the Lord prevailed in Israel, very much in the same way as eldership in the church today. You know, I mean, elders can't, you know, sort of like, they don't govern the church on the basis of what they want. They're there to ensure that the teaching of the Bible prevails and therefore that there's justice and equity and righteousness and peace, blah, blah, blah. And so therefore these psalms concerning the king, I mean, sort of people were, you know, really prayed for their king because they, they, they knew full well, get a good king and you're really blessed, get a bad king and, you know, it's bad news and, and, and Israel suffered so much uh, at the hands of bad kings. So therefore these psalms which kind of celebrate the king, uh, encourage the king, they're psalms of praying for the king, and also they foreshadow at the same time the eventual coming of Messiah, who will be king over the earth. And so in many ways those psalms, uh, you know, sort of like they're written in the sense of this is ideally what we want our king to be, be it David or Solomon or whoever, and yet they're descriptive of, what, of, of how King Jesus is going to be in absolute perfection when he rules the earth from Jerusalem. So, you know, that, that, that kind of um, category of Psalms has that two, two aspects to it, the King of Israel at the time and the eventual coming King, uh, the Messiah, King Jesus himself. Um, the next category, if you go to Psalm 120, and is, is, this is actually a whole clump of Psalms, all clumped together. Um, Actually, Psalm 120, right, right through to Psalm 134. We're not going to read them all. You'll be glad to know. And uh, they're, they're, they're what are called, and this is a natural category within the book itself, they're what are called the Songs of Ascents. Now, you'll have seen that, the Songs of Ascents in the Psalms. And, uh, and basically, what, what these are, is uh, they're, they're pilgrimage songs. These were the Psalms, or the songs that would be sung, when people were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, they, they, they all centre, um, you know, sort of around, around the fact that if, if I go to the hill of the Lord, he'll help me. Um, you know, if I lift my eyes up to, to the Lord's holy hill, I know that I'll be able to find him there. And they kind of reflected the fact that when people were going to Jerusalem for the Passover, for the Day of Atonement, that it reflected the idea that they were on a, a pilgrimage and that when they got to Jerusalem, that their God would be there. Like a pilgrimage, as it were, almost to see, only not literally, but to see their God. And, um, I mean, it's like, you know, Psalm 122, for instance. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. And then this is the one in verse 6. Pray 
for the peace of Jerusalem. And of course, that's a commandment that we adhere to here. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that's the psalm where that um, instruction comes. And uh, so, so these Song of Ascents were the pilgrimage songs. And of course, they foreshadow the fact that one day in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, that every nation, not just the Jews, but every nation will have to go up and worship Jesus once a year in Zion, in Jerusalem. And so these psalms were a picture of we are going to our God. We are on a pilgrimage to our God. And of course, in the millennial reign, that will be fulfilled in a literal way. And all the nations of the earth will go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, who they will see physically. And, uh, and of course, it's interesting that for us, as the church, who are in between those two times, because obviously we're not Old Testament and we're not the thousand-year reign of Christ, are we? We are the church at the moment. And that for us, it's never a question of going to find the Lord. The Lord came to us. And, you know, this is why in this age, the church age, it's not a question that the kingdom comes with signs. Of this age, Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God isn't low here or low there. The kingdom is among you. Because if I want to go to the house of the Lord, where do I go? Well, I don't go anywhere. I am the house of the Lord. I don't go to a house of the Lord. I am the house of the Lord individually. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And of course, corporately as believers, as a church, we are living stones built in to a holy temple, as Peter says. So for us, in the church age, we don't have to pilgrimage anywhere at all. The Lord has rather come to us. And so therefore we don't, you know, this is the sadness in, in you know, fellowships today, which still centre their lives around a building. Now, I don't so much have a problem with the building. I mean, we, you know, hire a hall, don't we? But the point is they centre the life of, you know, their life as a church around a building that they consider to be the house of the Lord, or indeed they consider the building to be the church. Now, that's completely wrong. The house of the Lord is not a place. The house of the Lord is people. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God. And, uh, but anyway, that side, there's the old... Um, Songs of Ascents, or the, the Pilgrimage Psalms. Now then, um, a seventh category that, that I'd give you of what are technically called didactic psalms, or didactic simply means instructional. So they're psalms that are written uh, kind of like in order to teach you something. And, uh, you know, indeed, um, you know, on the, the Christian music scene today, or not just the Christian music scene, but there is music that is actually there to teach you something. I mean, some of Don Francisco's songs I mean, there's, there's a lot of good teaching. They are didactic songs that he sings. You really learn something of the Word of God from the words. So let's have a look at this category. Uh, go to Psalm 1. Can't really do the Psalms without looking at the first one. And Psalm 1, and we'll, we'll read this. Right, okay. I think you'll see what I mean by instructional, that there's teaching in here. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now can you see the teaching there? What the psalmist is saying, live right, live in faithfulness to the Lord. And, you know, a tree by the water side, well, it's getting everything it needs. It's drawing its nourishment. Its roots are getting the water. And therefore it's fruitful. No problem. But then he goes on, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the point is that with something like that, you could, you know, I mean, sort of say, take, take those verses or that psalm, and think of the teaching that you can draw out this picture of a tree planted by the water, you know, and living right before God. And so with a psalm like that, you've got a teaching content. It's actually teaching you something of the Word of God. Now, obviously, you could say that all the Psalms do that, which of course they do. These categories overlap. I'm, I'm doing my best with these categories, obviously. You know, I mean, the, the whole category about, you know, the, the Psalms that proclaim the sovereignty of God. Obviously, they're chock-a-block full of teaching about the sovereignty of God as well. But there's almost, with these, these instructional Psalms, they're almost like little, little sermonettes put to music. That, that's the point. So, so there's a category there. Now, to, to round up this bit, there's um, another, uh, what I would call, much larger category, all right? Um, and it's one that, that itself breaks down into subcategories. And uh, so, so we'll move on to that one um, now. And it's the category of what you call personal prayer, reflecting the individual prayer life and relationship that the psalmist has with the Lord himself. And, um, you know, so, so, so this kind of personal prayer aspect, um, I would sort of like break down in, in, into further subcategories. Uh, you know, perhaps you'll, you'll get the idea as we, um, we go through it. If you go to Psalm 3, all right, and uh, this, this is my first subcategory of this larger category of what you might call personal prayer or direct reflection of, of the psalmist, as it were, crying out to the Lord about whatever. And uh, it's kind of the sort of crying out to be delivered or set free from the psalmist's foes. Let's, let's actually read it. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And there you get a selah. See there, see selah? No one knows what it means. But you are a shield around me, O oh Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Whatever that means, of course. So there can you see you've got a direct instance now where you've got a psalm that is written directly out of an experience that the psalmist is having in his own personal life i.e here and uh, you know sort of like from the nature of the psalm i mean it's a psalm of david and here you've got one of the occasions where david is surrounded by enemies people who are out to get him people who are out to trip him up and remember that david later on in his life actually experienced that his own son, Absalom, 
was leading a coup against him and trying to kill him. You know, and that David at that point had to sort of like be on the run in his own kingdom because Absalom was declaring himself to be the king and various people in the nation were siding with him against David. And so here we've got a psalm, a cry to the Lord, you know, written as it were a psalm. One can almost see David probably hiding in a cave or something, you know, strumming away on his guitar or whatever it was he was carrying with him at the time, you know, strumming away on his guitar and actually singing out, you know, how, you know, guitar players, I play the guitar, sometimes you just get your guitar, you're just plucking away, you're, you're, you're just trying to, something that's going on inside you to put it in some kind of musical and, uh, you know, poetical expression. And that's what David is doing here. And it, it's, it's the kind of, oh Lord, all these people are out to get me, I'm being persecuted, I'm being got at from every side, Lord, deliver me from my foes. Now, now that I think is something that we can all identify with. Obviously, for us, it's not so much against flesh and blood. It was, you know, very much for David. It's against the principalities and powers. But, I mean, there are times when we do experience that people, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of decide that, that they very much don't want to be our friends. And, and, and all sort of things, you know, all kinds of things start to happen to us that we're really, you know, that aren't easy. You know, the old, you know, Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and persecute you and cast out your name as evil. Well, we experience that at times, to whatever extent. And, and here we have a psalm of David crying out, Oh Lord, you know, now, I mean, obviously, we, I mean, in a sense, what, you know, his prayer here, I mean, it's, you know, it's rather graphic, isn't it? You know, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. You know, I mean, he's, you know, he's saying, you know, Oh Lord, punch their lights out. I mean, that, that, that's what he's saying. Now, obviously, that, that is not, I hope, what we are praying concerning <laughs> anyone who decides to become our foe, I, I hope we're praying that God will bless them. But nevertheless, I think that kind of warlike, antagonistic, aggressive attitude towards Satan and the principalities and powers, yes, we'll certainly have some of that. You know, so I mean, you know, here's a psalm really, oh Lord, you know, sort out the enemy. You know, a bit, bit of a spiritual warfare thing. Uh, let's see another example of this. Go to, um, go to uh, Psalm 7. And uh, very, very similar. Again, it's David. Notice that this is a Shigayon of David. Can you see that in your Bible? A Shigayon of David, yes? Have you got that in your Bibles? A meditation. A meditation. Oh, there's someone who thinks they know what Shigayon is. No one actually knows what it means. The actual word there is Shigayon. But who, 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 what? They don't know what it means. So what? I don't care. It's a brilliant psalm. The Lord speaks through it. O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, for they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. And then, this is good, O Lord my God, if I've done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have done evil to him who is at peace with me, or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Selah, whatever that means. Um, and, you know, so, so, so there's... Uh, kind of, you know, a good because there are times when maybe people are very much against us, and that sends us to the Lord in prayer, and that's that's fine. But it's always right and proper that before we just automatically assume, oh well, of course they're persecuting me because of my faithfulness to the Lord. It's always worth a look that you haven't actually sinned against them and upset them. Now, the fact that they're upset is wrong, but the point is, if someone is against you because you have sinned against them 
then the answer to that isn't, oh Lord, you know, give me grace in this time of persecution. The answer to that is to go and make your peace with the person. And David prays that. You know, he says, Lord, if they're after me, if it's my fault, then sort me out. Fair enough, that's, that's a good thing to pray. But can you see the same kind of thing here, you know, this, this prayer for deliverance from enemies? Because obviously the Christian life is going to involve warfare. Against the principalities and powers? Yeah, sure, sometimes that means that people don't like us, but obviously our fight isn't against people, it's against principalities and powers. So, so, so there's that one. We all, we all need that. I think we all know what it is at times to be saying, oh, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. You know, oh, dear, they're, they're out to get me, Lord. I'll just help, help. See, there, there's that category. Now then, the next category in this, well, the next subcategory of this big category of, of personal prayer is if, if you go to, to Psalm 32, and this is a real important one, is uh, repentance and confession. And any prayer life that doesn't, you know, contain a fair bit of repentance and confession isn't a prayer life worth having. And you certainly see this in, in David. Okay, Psalm, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin are covered. And it's atonement. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. There's imputation. Salvation series, you know. And in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now the ministry of laying on of hands takes two forms in the Christian life, doesn't it? There's like the blessing laying on of hands, you know, perhaps you're baptised in the spirit or healed or things like that. And that's us laying hands on people. Well, there's when the Lord lays hands on you, and that's the application at the other end, isn't it? And uh, all children need the laying on of hands at the other end. And, uh, and this is what David is talking about here. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a hiding here. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So there's David saying, Lord, once I came clean, I had peace again. When I was fighting you on that, when I was rebelling against you on that, when I wouldn't come clean on that, it was dreadful. I felt bad, life was horrible, I didn't have any peace at all, and your hand was heavy upon me. But once I came clean, once I confessed it, ah, you forgave me, back at peace, the guilt gone. And, uh, and then he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then he goes on, and this is, this is, this is all tied up with, with confession and repentance. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. This is now in the song, like the Lord talking back to David now. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfading love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. What the Lord's saying there is that, you know, don't, don't be like the horse or the mule. If you've got a horse or a mule, I mean, you know, sort of that horse or mule, that belongs to you, it does what you say. You say. So if you want a horse or a mule to go somewhere and it digs its heels in, what do you do? You put the bit in its mouth and you drag it. It goes there whether it wants to or not. It's got two choices. It can go there willingly or it can go there the hard way and that's exactly the same with us the Lord's going to get us there you know he's going to get us to heaven there's no question about that 
But there are two ways of going. We can go willingly, or we can go kicking and screaming, having dug our heels in and being dragged along with a bit and bridle in our mouth. And uh, you know, the, the choice is ours. Obviously, it's a much more joyous journey if uh, you know we don't, um, you know, sort of like resist too much. And uh, then if you go to Psalm 51, and this is the the the, the very famous, very well known psalm, um, and this was the psalm that David wrote. You remember after he committed the sin with Bathsheba, he had her husband murdered. He committed adultery with her. She got pregnant. He had her husband murdered. And uh, the prophet Nathan, you remember, came to David and you know convicted him of the sin. And you know, sort of like David. And this was why the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, because he repented. He didn't. David didn't try and wriggle his way out of it. He came clean. Now listen to this. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. And with a psalm like this, we should be able to read this now, and our hearts should vibrate in sympathy to this. Right? See if it does, you know. I'm not going to ask people to put their hands up one way or the other, but just see if your heart vibrates in sympathy. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I hope you're vibrating in sympathy, I really do. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. There's no question of God being in the wrong here, is there? We're in the wrong, not God. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire proof. <laughs> proof, truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, then balls will be offered on your altar. I mean, that, that should, we should all in our hearts be saying, yeah, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And what's so remarkable about it is that isn't David there expressing the truth about you and I? And that's why it's so marvellous. And yet just coming into the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's covering up that takes us away from the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's all there for us. But it's when we don't come clean, it's when we're proud, when we're self-righteous, that we cut ourselves off in that sense, from the grace of God. Because if we're righteous, we don't need the grace of God. But David, he needed the grace of God every moment of his life. And that's, that's the same with us.
So there's repentance and confession. Um, go to Psalm 88. Um, I don't know whether you can identify with this one. I know that I can. Um, and it's the, what I call the cry of total despair. Now, um, some Christians don't believe that Christians should ever, ever be in despair. Well, ju judge for yourself from this psalm. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. There's not here absolute assurance that the Lord is hearing him, is he? For my soul is full of trouble. My life draws near to the grave. This is, Lord, I'm dying. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. See, the psalmist here feels that God has just cut off, that it doesn't care about him anymore. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. Very much shades of Job there. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Can you see, this is a cry of despair. This, this, is a, this is a believer, a faithful believer who doesn't know where to turn next because he's so overwhelmed at what God is doing in his life and he's lost all sight. He's just drowning in his sin. All right. I call to you, O Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Now, when, when we feel like that, it's, it's good, it's helpful. It, it doesn't make life feel any better at the time, but it's just nice to know that other men of God have been there before us. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, you know, sort of like, you know, let's hope you'll go through a period of real despair soon as you experience this. <laughs> if you escape despair, that is wonderful. But many Christians, in their following of the Lord, despair is one of the things that sometimes they have to face. And at least we can know that the psalmists went there too. And, uh, you know, it's good to be able to, um, you know, sort of like read that. And uh, can you see that what the psalms are doing, they are running the full gamut of human experience. I mean, when, when feelings are kind of out of control, or because I mean, you know, what control do we have over our feelings? Obviously, we've got to make sure our feelings don't control us, but at the same time, we don't necessarily have control over our feelings. But it's just so nice in reading the Psalms to see that whatever feelings you are feeling at the moment, the Psalmist went through it all. You know, I mean, are you just bubbling over with joy and, uh, you know, and, and, and hopping, skipping and dancing and, 
and life couldn't be more fantastic and the Lord is so wonderful, you just want to dance down the road shouting out hallelujah. Is that how you feel? Praise the Lord. There's loads of songs that reflect just that. Are you feeling that there's no point in going on? That you don't know how you're going to live tomorrow as a Christian? It's just too much for you. Well, there's loads and loads of songs that reflect that as well. You see, whatever it is, other people have been there and the Lord understands it. And this is a help to us. So that whatever we, I mean, if you're feeling great, well then obviously those feelings are going to really be an aid to you following the Lord. That's, that's great. But when the feelings are negative, when the feelings are the dark side, it's vital that we don't let them affect our discipleship too much. That is where some of the Psalms are so helpful because they do bring reassurance. Then if you go to Psalm 77, I'm going to show you, and this, this is sort of like the last category in this kind of personal prayer thing. And, um, and you'll see something that, that, that often happens in the Psalms, and it's good for us to do this. There's a valuable lesson here. Let's, let's just read, read through it. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. What he's doing here is he's remembering, like, you know, in the past, when it was really, you know, he was just like that with the Lord, you know, and he had the joy of his salvation and stuff like that. And he looks back, you know, when God's blessing, when all he had to do was pray something and it happened, okay? And it, he's, he's looking back to that, and he's groaning, oh no, how do I ever get back to that? You know, it can almost be depressing, can't it, to a certain extent. And he says, I mused and my spirit grew faint. He said, you kept my eyes from closing, I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night, my heart mused and my spirit inquired. And now he's, he's, he's gathering himself now, the, the, the feelings are all wrong. There's nothing he can do about that, but he's gathering his mind, he's using his mind, he's using his will, and he's inquiring. And this is, this is the thought process that he goes through. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed full time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? And of course, as he's asking these questions, he's like saying, no, of course not. He's starting to think, oh, I am being silly. If I'm thinking God doesn't love me, oh, how silly. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will remember on all your works. Sorry, I, I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, is, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And he goes on like that. And what he's doing is that even though in the here and now, it's as if God isn't there, and he's all lost and all the feelings are wrong, what he does is he remembers back to what God has undeniably done in the past. And as he centers on what God has done in the past, so his mind is going off himself and his own problems, and then the joy of the Lord begins to come back to him. And that's often something that we need to do. If we are in despair, if we are in the darkness, you can't necessarily do anything about the feelings, but what you can do, you can remind yourself of what God has done for you. 
Jesus died on the cross for you. And remember, at the end of the day, if God doesn't do another thing for you, he's already done enough, you're going to heaven. See? But he's going to do a lot more for us than that. The point is that often when we can't, when now is bad, we can look back at what God has done for us in the past, and then often that can be just the tonic that we need that lifts us out of that negative depression or whatever and puts us back online and sort of restores to us a bit of the older joy of, of our salvation, as it were. And so, you know, sort of like there, you see it, I mean, we've just had, what a quick dippy-dippy. A psalm for every occasion. They run the gamut of, of, of human experience and emotions, good and bad, up and down, joyful and depressed. The whole lot, they're there. And uh, it's, it's total reality. And that's a beautiful thing about it. I mean, you know, God came to save sinners, that's you and me. And when you read the Psalms, you're, you're looking partially at the emotional, uh, you know, kind of experiences that sinners who are being redeemed go through. And so the fact that we go through it often shouldn't discourage us because they went through it as well. Now, just very quickly, we're just going to belt through uh, just a few examples of the last category as well. And uh, we're just going to look at what I'm going to call the Messianic Psalms. Um, and, and these are just some of the bits in the Psalms that get quoted in the New Testament as relating to Jesus. And as we go through them, I think you'll see that, that speckled amongst the Psalms, regardless of what category the Psalm may or may not be in, the verses, there are verses in the Psalms that form a category all of their own, and they're prophetic verses concerning the coming of Jesus, and, and all of them have been fulfilled. So we'll just very quickly go through, go through some of those. And uh, first of all, Psalm 2. You should recognise these without me having to tell you where they, where they are. And um, verse, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And of course that is quoted in the Acts of the Apostles concerning Jesus. If you go to Psalm 8. And uh, verse 4 to 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honour and glory. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And of course the writer to the Hebrews uses those verses in chapter 2 to establish that Jesus was the Messiah, God, become a man. Uh, Psalm 16. Verse 10, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Well, there you've got the resurrection of Jesus. And that gets quoted concerning Jesus being raised from the dead in Acts 13. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus died on the cross, he quoted this psalm. This psalm was a prophetic, you know, of the death of Jesus and him being on the cross. Go to um, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and, dis and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Boom. That's exactly what happened when Jesus was dying on the cross, wasn't he? Um, go to verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me, 
uh, dogs was a term that the Jews used of the Gentiles. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This psalm was written hundreds of years before the Roman Empire came up with the idea of crucifixion. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Go to Psalm 40. Verse 7. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And the writer to the Hebrews quotes that concerning Jesus. There are others, but we'll, we'll leave that there. And so just to give you an idea that there's this other thread running all the way through the Psalms. And uh, if you were to sort of like, you know, sort of go through all the references in the Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament in regards to Jesus and salvation and his life and death, etc., etc., you would learn an awful lot about the life, death, life and death of the Messiah just from reading the Psalms. It really is quite amazing. So drawing, drawing to a close now, and um, I just thought it might be fun just to um, chuck in for you so you get an idea, well, you know, to choose my, my favourite psalms, my, my three favourite psalms, all right? So go to Psalm 69. This is the first of my three favourite psalms. I'm not going to read them all, or read all of it, but I'm going to read the first five verses. Yeah, that's right, yeah. This, this I think, probably is... Um, I wouldn't want to put them in an order, all right? But let's say this is number three, then, all right? Number three. Now, see if you can guess why Psalm 69. Now, I'm going to read the first five verses. See if you can guess why this is one of my favourite psalms. And uh, I'll just give you a clue. I like things I can identify with. Right. Okay. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. Now there's a lot more, but you can see why I can identify with that. You know, help <laughs> is, yeah, I, that's, that's, that's good. Um, go to Psalm 131. I'm always in trouble, you see, so that's why I like that psalm. Psalm 131. Um, I'm going to read this RSV version, this one. It's, you know, sacrilegious to me, the way the NIV does this. I'm quoting it, you know, so I, you know, I know it off by heart. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a child quieted at its mother's breast, like a child that is quieted is my soul. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And what I love about that psalm is that the picture that it's painting there is it's, it's, it's 
King David saying, I don't understand what's going on. It's all beyond me, Lord. It's too much for me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so arrogant, so proud as to assume that I know what's going on. I don't. It's too wonderful. It's too big. But it doesn't matter because, Lord, I'm snuggled up on your lap just like a little baby is when it's suckling at his mum's breast. And that's what I'm going to I'm just going to curl up on your lap. I don't know what's happening, but you do. Now, I love that because that's, 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 um, that's peace. That's, that's safety, that is. You know, knowing up when you're, you're, you're snuggled up on Father's lap, you're safe then. I love that. And then my other one, you'll be very glad to know that I'm not going to read all this one. It's Psalm 119. <laughs> and the thing is, the thing is, I love all 176 verses. Amazing, isn't it? I'm so tempted. We've got time to read it. Let's read it. It's beautiful. Just settle back, listen to this. Because everything is in this psalm. All the categories that I've read, all the ca it's all in there. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are fully to be obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. He's saying that oh, if only I could obey better. That's what he's saying there. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And there, there's one of our protections against sin. It's hiding God's word in our heart. You know, the truth shall set us free. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. And just say I'm a stranger on earth. Every verse here, you could, I could do a series based on every individual verse of this psalm because it, it brings out so, so much. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me the scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. For I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands. For you have set my heart free. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. You see, because he keeps blowing it, you see. 
Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Do good to your servants according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. I'm going to read that one again because this is one of the most important. Well, it's, it's one of my favourite verses in the Bible because I could never emphasise how much the truth of this verse has featured in my own life. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, you do what is good, teach me your decrees. Through, though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. I'm going to read that again. It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Right, now that's the first 72 verses, but I'm actually going to leave it there. But the two verses underline them, and, and, and really the, these two verses are what make Psalm 119 one of my favourites, because everything else in there, if you read the psalm in the light of those two verses, it, it, it's just so wonderful. So these two verses, if you do nothing but underline these verses in your heart tonight, then, then, then the study would have been worth it. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And then verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decree. That's the discipline of the Lord. And without the discipline of the Lord, we're never, ever going to live holy lives. 
and we're never ever going to show forth the fruit of the life of Jesus within us. Right, I will leave it there. <laughs>